Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Good afternoon and welcome to the program. Today, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. We're brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education training and has the only program of its kind with an accredited CEU. To learn more about SSI Guardian, go to SSIGuardian.com and tell them you heard about them on Living Well with Dr. Pegg. Well, our show today is pre-recorded, uh, but you can listen to Living Well with Dr. Pegg every Thursday from 1 to 2 Mountain on KLZ 560 and online at drpegradio.com. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. And you can also learn more about my personal transformation retreats and other upcoming events, as well as purchase my books, Do Something Different for Change, and Doggy Tales by going to drpegradio.com. And if you'd like to just leave a comment on my Facebook page about today's show, feel free anytime to go to Dr. Pegg on Facebook. Well, today's show, we're going to be examining how active shooter and lockdown drills at schools may be causing anxiety in students. Now, in the aftermath of the Parkland, Florida school shooting, more schools than ever will be doing active shooter drills and lockdown drills. And some of these drills are very realistic, with police showing up with guns drawn and students being required to throw objects, objects at the would-be assailant. Are these drills causing anxiety in students and teachers? Well, to help us understand more about anxiety and how children might be affected by these kinds of realistic drills, my guest today is Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, and she's no stranger to the Living Well with Dr. Pegg show. Happy to have Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland back on. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and renowned expert in the area of anxiety disorders. And Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland has been a professor at Johns Hopkins University and UCLA and has researched different treatments and outcomes for anxiety disorders as well as the impact of community violence on children. Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, thanks for being with us. Welcome back to the program. It's my pleasure, Dr. Pegg. Thank you. Oh, right. Well, let's just jump right in, Michelle. We've got a lot to cover today and it's, it's just so relevant with everything that's been going on. And there's a lot of debate about uh, how to respond to all the violence that's occurring in schools. Um, but what we're seeing is um, people being proactive, schools being proactive and preventative and doing active shooter training and active shooter drills and lockdown drills. And that's really important. Um, but we have to take a look at how we're doing them and how it impacts students. So I was reading an article that was posted in The Atlantic online. And uh, it's, it's uh, obviously talking about how more children are taking part in these mandatory drills at schools across the country. And they say that um, in some drills, uh, for example, a faculty member plays the role of the shooter, uh, jiggling doorknobs as children practice keeping perfectly silent. Uh, many parents, teachers, and students say the experience is somewhere between upsetting and traumatizing. Uh, so what, as an anxiety expert, what are your thoughts on um, that idea that these types of drills, while they're important for us to have, this, have some kind of training, but they're causing anxiety. What are your thoughts about that? 
Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, so I think they are, you have to look at who these active training, training drills are serving. Mm. Are they serving the adults who meet, have the need to feel like they're doing something constructive that is solution-oriented to help their children? Or are we looking at, at it more from the perspective of the students who are there and the ones who are either going to be the target of some kind of violent episode that is unpredictable on their campus. And I think if we look at it from those two perspectives, we get different answers. Mm. So the adults feel like they feel out of control and that there's not only a demand for their from themselves to do something to, to increase the safety of the students, but there's now a, a huge demand, a national demand um, and campaign from the students to do something. So doing something is critical, but we have to keep in mind who the target is for these different interventions. Um, these, there's, you know, from what I've understood about how these training simulators work, it, it depends. I mean, you're asking, there's not one cookie cutter uh, training that all the school systems use. They're variable. So some are, some are well-designed and others are designed well to increase kids' anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. And so that's really an important distinction is who is being trained, uh, who is this for? And we know that uh, the way that law enforcement trains for an active shooter response is very different than how civilians should train. And so you're even saying in that category of civilian training, we really have to make a distinction between the adults being trained and the students either being trained or at least um, having practice with what the drill would look like, with what the lockdown might look like. Um, so let's, let's take a sidestep before we get more into what that training looks like and how it impacts uh, okay. students and teachers. Uh, but you've uh -huh. researched the impact of community violence on children. And so one thing that's been talked about as well is the possibility that these types of drills can re-traumatize students and children who've already experienced violence or trauma in their homes and communities. So the quote that I read uh, earlier was that the reaction is somewhere between upsetting and traumatizing. And that doesn't mm -hmm. take into account kids who may already be showing up at school having been involved in community violence and who are already right. traumatized. Uh, what does your research tell us about the possibility of, of this type of drill re-traumatizing a kid where we don't even realize what they've been through? Right. So I study community violence and its impact on kids, and my, my research is school-based. So we go into the schools and we assess the kids as individuals in the system. So the work that we do really looks at kids kind of holistically. Mm. So it's the individual embedded in the system, which is the school, which is embedded in a community. Um, and within the overlaid on that is the family environment. So, mm -hmm. you know, kids, unlike adults, kids cannot function in society independently. They are dependent. So sometimes when you're looking only at adults, you can look at the uh, adults themselves and um, just focus only on them. With kids, they're in a system. Mm -hmm. So um, the kids who, who I work with live with chronic, who I work with, live with chronic ongoing 
threat mm-hmm. because the environments they live in are low, very low socioeconomic status usually because those are where that's primarily where community violence occurs. I mean, there are different types of community violence, including media violence, which affects anybody regardless of the, you know your economic situation or not. Um, but another type is um, is just being victims of of violence, of being um, bullied, uh, of being attacked physically, um, being uh, held up um, and beaten up um, for various reasons, for economic, for for just um, living where it's gang infested. I mean, so the the interventions that you that are um, implemented depend on that setting. Remember, we talked about the different systems that they live in. And they need to be individualized because where there's no, um, where there's, where the environment outside of the school is also the threat, then you need to address both levels, both the the, um, neighborhood and within the school. Talking about today's topic, which is the school violence, these these potential acute we call them acute violence episodes because acute because they'll happen once if it happens at all it happens once and it's very unlikely to happen again happen mm-hmm. again it's just like the movie theater event that we're all familiar with and uh when when uh that that those assault rifles were taken at the the batman movie changes occurred right in the movie theaters that we go into now you get a a a, a signal that's a, you get a, a message that says check all your exits before you you know before and look where you're going if you see anything suspicious tell tell an usher that kind of thing so we've all had changes as a result of that one incident but many of us who go to the theaters since that batman movie episode um don't live with a heightened fear maybe an elevated concern but not an ongoing fearfulness that we might be targeted uh, and shot if we go to a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we need to distinguish between um, these, the difference between the community violence and the uh, acute school shooter episodes. They're, 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 different. they're different on multiple levels. Right, Dif- different responses, but when they overlap, as you're describing... Uh, it just makes it even more complex and why we really have to be paying attention to individual students' reactions um, during during a drill or during uh, if we're aware of community violence happening in a student's neighborhood. We really need to be yeah. paying attention to individual students because it, it seems like it's just so complicated. Uh, it, would, right. it would be hard to really account for everything going on. Right, right, right. And I want to bring in, if I could... Mm-hmm. Um, some research from someone we both know very well, uh, Professor Dewey, Dewey Cornell from UVA, mm-hmm. University of Virginia, and he directs the Virginia Youth Violence Project and has been doing this work for decades and is, and is, is internationally renowned for, for the quality and the significance of his work. Um, but school safety has been the crux of what he studies and they're pro- they've been monitoring um, the research since uh, I mean since um, the last I don't know couple of decades. And in the past five years, there have been 305 incidents of gunfire in schools in the U.S. So 305. Mm. It's not the 
you know, we think of Columbine, we think of Parkland, we think of these uh, more recent events, but they've been ongoing. Uh, and they, he makes the case, though, that as bad as these are, kids are 70 times more likely to be murdered outside of school than in school. So we need to, I, we need to teach children not just about within school, but risk being um, vigilant and pr- protecting themselves or making steps to go to trusted individuals when they feel uh, there's a potential threat uh, so that the trusted individuals can take it from there so the children don't feel so burdened that they're the ones who have to prevent the episode or to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, we can learn a lot from the research. It, it seems like there are so many people out there offering training. I, I read it in, you know, in the papers and online almost er- every day. You'll see headlines about a different city offering active shooter mm-hmm. training and um, trying mm-hmm. to do interventions. And it, it's just perhaps some retired law enforcement person mm-hmm. just going out doing whatever mm-hmm. that they think is best. But it, there's such a body of research that we can draw upon and have evidence-based practices and interventions and trainings okay. uh, yes. done by the appropriate people who have the bigger mm-hmm. picture of not just, mm-hmm. as you're talking about, acute violence, active shooter mm-hmm. violence, mm-hmm. but taking into account the whole child, uh, the whole community, right. and really right. making sure that we're ad- addressing uh, the needs of, of, of those students. Right, right. We can't lose who we're trying to help. Mm-hmm. And, and the kids should be at the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me read another uh, quote from um, this Atlantic article online. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, licensed clinical psychologist and researcher at UCLA and Johns Hopkins University. Uh, the quote says here, uh, having to practice and prepare for a peer coming to my school and shooting me, shooting at me and my friends was something mm-hmm. that really changed the overall atmosphere. Looking back, it was a major shift in how the world felt. And this is a quote from a student um, who, who, who's going through active shooter training at their school, and it's not just the, the threat of violence itself, but now this child is suspicious of or concerned about his own friends, that someone he mm-hmm. knows, a fellow student, maybe trying mm-hmm. to kill him. Uh, what mm-hmm. does that do to a child's sense of security? Well, it, it helps erode it because trust, safety and security are the two basic needs that kids need um, and have in, adoles- in childhood and adolescence, safety and security. So safety in relationships, security in their environment, and having to be on on. Uh, high vigilant alert. Mm-hmm. about yeah high alert about who who might potentially harm them is a different situation it's like us going on an airplane after that shoe bomber you know um, you, you know you start looking left and right at okay am I safe where are my exits do I need to be suspicious of anybody getting on the airplane you know it's been 9/11 has been a little while now so so people who aren't as close to aren't aren't as familiar as, as watching that event live, don't have the same uh, stress response as others do who are about to get on an, to get on an airplane. Um, and so it's this kind of event that, that um, having kids, encouraging kids to um, be 
on search for who might be harmful mm-hmm. uh, isn't healthy. They're not trained like that. I mean, as you just mentioned about different people offering school training, what we can teach kids is, you know, say something. See something, say something. Mm-hmm. That, 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 little, that little tagline actually is helpful because the, the responsibility isn't on the child to stop some potential deadly trauma. Mm-hmm. The, the, the responsibility that the child hears is to talk to somebody and pass it on to someone who actually has the capability of assessing threat yeah. um, and interviewing and assessing someone who might be a threat to to uh, others in their environment. Right, and so the challenge is really helping students to, if you see something, say something, increasing their mm-hmm. situational awareness, but knowing that mm-hmm. uh, even if they suspect a friend or a peer, they don't have to carry that burden. They shouldn't carry that burden. They they should tell an no. adult who who hopefully will have their own training that's appropriate for adults to be able to keep the school safe. We know that if students don't feel safe, they can't learn. And so this is so critically important, is not only doing the right kind of training, but um, as we're talking about today, managing that anxiety that arises just from living in the times we're living in and whatever interventions might be having at school, being mindful they could be exacerbating the anxiety. Well, I'm speaking with expert Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, licensed clinical psychologist, and we're talking about uh, the effect that living in this active shooter environment has on our kids. When we come back, we'll talk more about that anxiety and how we can uh, mitigate it. Stay with us. We'll be back. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. What if a psychologist with years of experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided effective strategies for experiencing lasting change? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Celebrating 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares critical insights to help you understand and overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Pegg clearly communicates fundamental principles and strategies for change and personal transformation. Read Do Something Different for a Change today and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradio.com slash books to purchase your copy today. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit SSIGuardian.com. 
Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and my guest today is Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, licensed clinical psychologist. We're talking about the impact that active shooter incidents have and, and active shooter drills and lockdown drills can have on, on students, how, how the impact it has on them and their level of anxiety. Dr. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us on the show today. It's my pleasure. And how can listeners connect with you if they'd like to reach out? Uh, the best place is Real Optimal Living. That's uh, www.realoptimalliving.com. All right, great. And I'll also have a link to Dr. Michelle on my website, drpegradio.com. And if you want to share this interview with someone you know or you've missed any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, you can check out the program archives at drpegradio.com. Uh, so, Michelle, Dr. Michelle, we were talking about how um, even having this um, notion, kids having this notion that it could be one of my classmates, it could be one of my friends mm -hmm. who is mm -hmm. the school shooter, it's anxiety-provoking enough, but now they feel like, oh, my goodness, I can't trust anyone. And so we were talking about how important it is. It's not just a slogan, but if you see something, say something. And we mm -hmm. talked last week on my sh uh, show about um, also if you sense something, do something. So we can mm -hmm. tune into our intuition, and we don't want mm -hmm. um, anyone really to minimize or dismiss that. We, we don't want to stereotype and and um, profile folks, but we do want to, you know, say something or do something mm -hmm. if, if, if our alarms are going off, those internal alarms. Now, uh, another thing that I'm, I'm referencing an article I read in The Atlantic online, and um, one issue they talked about also uh, is uh, that schools are doing surprise lockdown drills. And we saw it in, mm -hmm. in Parkland, Florida, that there had mm -hmm. been um, a drill um, previous, you know, they had done these drills previously. And so mm -hmm. when the fire alarm went off, it was kind of like, well, is this another drill? You know, is this a surprise drill? What's going on here? There was some confusion. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. these surprise lockdown drills uh, can be problematic um, with, with regard to anxiety. One par parent in the Atlantic article uh, said that uh, now my daughter can't stop thinking about when it's going to happen and how she'll know if it's real or not. And mm -hmm. so how does uncertainty factor into and exacerbate anxiety just as a general principle uh, when it comes to anxiety? Well, I mean, you, you said about how it, it, it's, that it exacerbates uncertainty, exacerbates anxiety. So it gets the worry, it gets that, that what might happen, uh, that uh, perseveration, that feeling of impending doom and uh, emotional distress by these um, concerns that you, that you are fixated on, the, trying to control the uncontrollable. And the surprise element is just, I mean, when people become anxious or fearful, what is it? It's typically something that was unexpected mm -hmm. occurred that they cannot control. So you're, they're making this perfect storm of creating more anxious kids. And then after the, after the lockdown uh, uh, practice is held, then they want them to go ahead and take that pop quiz or take <laughs> a, a test or write and take some notes mm. and be quiet. No, you're agitating them. So it's, but we're talking about, I mean, the average child, just talk about the average normal child. Mm -hmm. They will be fine. It's, it's the kids at the extreme that you're going to be, that you are going to make worse. 
the kid who's generally, you know, has a temperament that's an anxious, worried temperament anyway. You're now giving them a new beacon Hmm. to focus on as a potential for harm befalling them. Uh, And so I think in schools or for parents who are listening and caregivers, if your child is generally an anxious child, you need to take additional steps, either yourself by interacting with your child and preparing them for the, for the, the world that they're living in, the school system they're living in, um, or uh, work with uh, the school counselor, make demands from the school that say, look, if you're going to do this and my child is anxious and I know there are multiple other children, at least um, probably 20, 10% who are severely anxious in this school, hmm. then you need to provide some additional services for them to process, to uh, work through this new reality uh, because to, to neglect that element of it is only causing going to cause academic problems, um, concentrating, eating, um, sleeping, uh, uh, other kinds of more complicated problems from, for my kid and another 10% of the kids at this school unless you also address um, the impact of this threat and mm-hmm. fear elevation. Well, and, and we know that when schools are doing their um, emergency operations plans, they need to mm-hmm. uh, take into account students with disabilities. And we tend to think yeah. of a student in a wheelchair or a blind student. Mm-hmm. How do we evacuate them? Mm-hmm. But you're br- bringing mm-hmm. up a really valid point. There might be students who have other types of um, disabilities, or mm-hmm. um, even if it's undiagnosed anxiety disorders, they are suffering from, as you said, even an anxious temperament that makes it really hard for them to kind of regroup after something so um, uncertain and unexpected and just so, um, you know, so heavy happens during their school day. Uh, so that's such an important point. Uh, I made mm-hmm. the point earlier that we, we really cannot train civilians, uh, students or teachers, the same way we train law enforcement. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, you know, the type of training makes such a big difference. So these surprise types of unexpected um, drills, these very realistic drills where guns mm-hmm. are drawn, those may be appropriate for police academy cadets, um, but I think mm-hmm. we made, made the case that that can traumatize kids and, and make them anxious. Um, and, and that's really why the, the advanced active shooter training that's offered by uh, SSI Guardian, who's our show sponsor, is so important. Uh, it's not about scaring kids, but really empowering people by, as we talked about, increasing situational awareness. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, if you see something, say something, but getting training to know, well, what are the things I'm looking for and what can I do? How should I intervene? Um, planning, preparation, uh, the ability to make tough decisions under stressful circumstances. We really have to make sure. Uh, we're giving the appropriate training at schools for the adults versus uh, the students. Um, I want to I want to share with you, Dr. Michelle. I had spoken with a mother recently whose son was in a lockdown at his school, and mm-hmm. it turned out that it was something nearby the school um, that the mm. police were able to resolve um, that didn't actually put the school in danger. But of course, their protocol was to lock down when they. The you know local police made them aware of whatever was going on. Now mm-hmm. nothing happened at the school. Everyone was safe. They mm-hmm. were actually never mm-hmm. in danger. But uh, this woman told me her son was very upset. He had texted her during the lockdown uh, before she got the notification from the school 
telling her, we're going to die. I'm going to die. That's what his text said. Um, so I told I told her, you know, her son might have been traumatized by the lockdown. Sure. Um, she should sure. really keep a close eye on him. And again, until schools adopt the right type of training, such as what I described that's offered by SSI Guardian, um, we can expect that this might happen to more than just this one kid. Um, oh, yeah. What kind of signs might be evident uh, that a student has been traumatized by one of these kinds of drills? They're, they're happening all over America on a very regular mm -hmm. basis. Turns mm -hmm. out no tragedy occurs like we saw in Parkland, Florida, but the lockdown drill nonetheless it may have traumatized students. What are things um, a parent should be looking for when they do get the notification their school, their kid's school has been on lockdown? What signs would, would we see in a kid that this is more than them, you know, just kind of bouncing back the next day? Sure. So first are questions that the child might be asking, like, Mom, um, do we have a gun? Mm -hmm. Mom, um, things that are, are fixated on elements that might occur in the school shooting in a school shooting situation, asking, um, uh, you know, do I have to go to school, some resistance to going to mm. school at all? Because there's avoidance as part of the anxiety and worry. You know, the natural instinct is to avoid the situation that they're fearful of. So there's questioning whether they have to go to school, starting with um, maybe faking some illness, um, saying I don't feel well, um, and trying to avoid going to school. Others are, are difficulty sleeping, falling asleep, staying asleep, a change from what your child was like before. So they're having difficulty because at, at nighttime when, you, when everything's quiet, that's when you start having thoughts and they might start thinking and ruminating about the potential danger that could occur at school. Um, the falling asleep, staying asleep, the dietary changes so that they uh, have a loss of, of wanting to eat um, or wanting to eat too much as a coping mechanism to try to soothe themselves and feel better. Uh, in a more severe cases, you might get regressive behavior like um, them acting more babyish mm. and more immature for younger kids because, you know, in preschools they're doing similar things. You know, maybe they've been potty trained, but now they're having accidents um, because of the stress reaction. Um, so, and, and with kids, we get a lot of irritability or on edge. So, you know, it's like you don't understand why is my, why is my child so grumpy? Um, it's because it could be because they're anxious and worried and they don't have the words or the vocabulary to explain, look, I'm stressed out. So instead, they're just grumpy and irritable um, when, in fact, they're trying to deal with on their own distress and worry associated with with um with being traumatized at school mm -hmm. well that's i think everything that you shared is great advice in general for our children is when we see a change in from their mm -hmm. normal a market change from their normal baseline functioning um, that mm -hmm. should be a red flag at least for parents to inquire, hey, I noticed this mm -hmm. change. Is everything mm -hmm. okay? What's going on? Uh, and in the context of especially uh, if you know that we're talking about, you know, lockdown drills, active shooter drills, if you know that's happened at your child's school and now you're seeing these very changes you described, we certainly need to pay attention to that. Yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, it, it's about interacting with your child and knowing your child and assessing changes. Mm -hmm. But it's also not, it's also about, yeah, 
individualizing it. So if your kid is just like, when, when you go to say, John, you know, what happened in school today because they had a surprise lockdown, or um, you know one's coming up, asking them, so how was your day? And then and kind of getting to that processing of that lockdown drill um, and seeing if it's a problem. So don't create, though, on the other side, mm-hmm. Dr. Pegg, don't create a problem where there is no problem. Mm-hmm. If your kid's like, eh, yeah, it was dumb, you know, and <laughs> it's like, okay, you can leave it like that. But, um, you know, just, just and you're, you might have two different kids. Right. One of your kids was two kids in the same school, and they have very, very different reactions. So individualize, tailor it to the child whom you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these lockdown drills and active shooter trainings can either make the kids anxious and activate an underlying anxiety or worry concern, it can trigger it, or they can become desensitized to it. Like like we were, Peg, we were in school and we had a, a, um, just a regular fire drill. Right. Like, oh, brother, this is just a waste. We weren't running around thinking, oh, my gosh, the building's burning and we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just became just a, just the thing that we had to do and cross off the list. Yeah. So it depends. It depends. That's a really good observation is um, we, we've grown up with fire drills, and they're mm-hmm. conducted very calmly. Students mm-hmm. know how to evacuate. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like the fire department comes in with the hoses out and their axe mm-hmm. busting down the door. So there's actually a really good lesson we can learn in how we mm-hmm. should be conducting active shooter drills when, the, when children are around um, mm-hmm. rather than when we're doing them for first responders and law enforcement. Uh, we don't do fire drills with fake, you know, fake fire and fake water hoses. We just teach the kids how to evacuate and how to get a certain number of yards away from the school and go to the safe meetup spot. And so maybe we need to be doing the same thing for uh, these types of drills. So uh, really good information about um, keeping in mind not every child is going to have a negative reaction, an anxious yeah. reaction, um, and we want to let them just tap into their own resilience and resistance to begin with, that it, they're okay with it. Uh, but in the example I gave of the mother who, uh, she, she saw that her child was very much in distress, and he very much feared for his life. Um, she probably should be on the lookout for those signs that you mentioned, changes in sleep patterns mm-hmm. and changes in eating or irritability, mm-hmm. regressing. And then we inquire, hey, what, what, what happened? And in general, I think we should be talking with our kids anyway about how they're doing, what's going on in their lives so we can see what Correct. their baseline even is, if there even is a change. Well, good stuff, good stuff. Well, let's uh, shift gears. We have about three minutes left in this segment to talk more generally about anxiety disorders. It's always a topic that I'm sure you as a psychologist in general and then certainly an expert in in anxiety disorders, um, I get a lot of questions from folks who are curious about or wondering if they've got the signs of an anxiety disorder, Uh, things like OCD and panic attacks Mm -hmm. and phobias. Uh, So let's start talking a little bit about those and we'll continue as well after the break. Um, Let's talk about um, um, obsessive compulsive disorder because that's something people Mm -hmm. sometimes joke about, you know, Mm -hmm. the compulsive Mm -hmm. actions and uh, obsessive thoughts. Um, Give us a general overview of what is OCD and how would we know if we or our loved one was actually um, suffering from that? Sure. Um, OCD, uh, as we call it, obsessive compulsive disorder, is a 
comment, well, overall, let me just say for anxiety disorders in general, they are the most prominent mental illness in the U.S. and wow. they affect about 40 million, 40 million adults in the U.S. ages 18 and older. Um, and about 18% of the population has um, an anxiety disorder that is diagnosable. Whether it's diagnosed or not is a different issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, they're highly treatable. They're, that's why I wanted to specialize in them, because they're highly treatable. Um, but only about 37% of people with anxiety disorders go for treatment. Wow. Um, so there's, uh, you know, 60-something percent of, the, of, our, of our fellow Americans are living and suffering unnecessarily. So um, I just want them to know that, that there's, uh, you know, there's, they're very treatable. Um, and uh, OCD is where you have a combination of compulsions and or obsessions that are uncontrollable. The obsessions are these thoughts that persist and will not go away and are most typically very um, unreasonable. Mm -hmm. They are not realistic, uh, and you have them despite knowing that they don't make sense. And so, Um, Dr. Michelle, yeah, let me me interrupt you there so we can go to break. So these would be um, unreasonable. So unlike what we're talking about, where children may have reasonable fears for their safety, um, and we definitely don't want them to be overreacting, but that's not an unreasonable fear. Uh, OCD, those obsessive thoughts would be something unreasonable. So we'll talk more about them when we return from the break. I'm speaking with Dr. Michelle Cooley Strickland. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do-something-different-for-a-change personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com retreat. Hey. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and I've been speaking with licensed clinical psychologist and UCLA and Johns Hopkins researcher, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Michelle or share this interview with a friend, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. Well, we've been talking about anxiety disorders, and earlier in, in the uh, program we were talking about in the context of, um, of shooter drills and lockdown drills, how anxiety-provoking they can be for students. And so we're talking now generally about anxiety disorders. Dr. Michelle shared that 40 million American adults suffer from um, um, anxiety disorders, and they're very treatable, yet most people who are living with anxiety disorders are not getting the help that they need. So part of um, um, sharing this interview with someone that you care about would be hopefully to open their eyes and let them know there is help, there's hope if they're suffering from anxiety. So Dr. Michelle, thanks again for being with us. We were talking about uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, and you described obsessions as those intrusive thoughts. Uh, so what are, what are compulsions in that OCD formula? The overt behaviors, those things that you can actually see. So mm -hmm. the, the obsessions are inside your head, they're internal, but the compulsions are behaviors that, that you can see, and they typically are done to counteract those thoughts, mm -hmm. that they're kind of thought of as preventive actions. So if I, if I tap the, the stove 10 times before I turn it on, it's going to prevent uh, the stove from blowing up. Or in my mind, I, in your mind. In my yeah. mind, mm -hmm. yeah, in my mind, sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and hand washing is a, is a, is a, is a frequent um, uh, compulsion like over washing the hands to the point lathering my must lather um, 15 times and rinse 15 times and then tap my elbow three times mm. and then um, I won't contract a disease. So it's, sometimes it's loosely. The compulsions don't have to be specifically sensical to the obsessions. Um, a lot of times they are, like if it's a, it's a fear of contracting a disease or an illness, it has to do with washing or cleansing. Um, it, it just depends. Um, but it's, it's very, it, they can get very overwhelming very quickly. And that typically always needs an outside help to help the person rid, of, rid them. Um, when, um, when I was younger, I used to obsess about dry hands, which is a really weird thing <laughs> that my brother and sister would say, why are you always putting lotion on her? You always have to, you know, it would drive me nuts to have very dry hands. And living in Virginia in the winter, it would be really craze making. Well, you'd be, um, you'd be that, in trouble here in Colorado because it's very dry, <laughs> even drier than Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> so it just... I, I I didn't have so many obsessions about it. Just I it just would drive me. It's like people putting fingernails on the blackboard and scratching. Mm. It just would have that kind of irritating sense. So if you think about that, um, living like that, but to a much greater degree, um, people you, you know there are different things that we obsess about, but not being able to turn it off. Mm -hmm. it, um, OCD affects about one percent of the population, and it, Unusually, most of the anxiety disorders affect females more than males, but in OCD, it's about equally common. Wow. Um, and the average age of onset is when you're about 19 is the typical age for diagnosable cases. But um, about a quarter of those who develop OCD 
start by about the age of 14. Hmm. Well, and so, you know, I'm wondering if an anxiety provoking lockdown drill or, you know, active mm -hmm. shooter kind mm -hmm. of um, mm -hmm. drill or even an event at a school mm -hmm. could trigger that latent, you know, anxiety disorder or OCD because mm -hmm. that, you know, that's mm -hmm. school age, um, 14 right. years old, they, you know, they'd be yeah. a high school student. So again, we've, that's all the more reason to, to really be um, intentional about the type of training that's being offered at schools and making sure it's the right kind of training and that you're aware of uh, your student population. And as you said, we look at the whole child within their community, within the school, mm -hmm. and then individually, mm -hmm. what's going on with mm -hmm. that individual child. Well, mm -hmm. let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk about phobias, because um, it mm -hmm. sounds like there might be a link there if, I, if you kind of have this weird thing about, you know, dry hands or, you know, mm -hmm. to the point that for some it could become a compulsion. Um, there mm -hmm. seems like there'd be a fear component there. So a, a phobia would be um, someone is, is afraid of something, but say more about that. So typically specific phobias are about just that, something specific that the average human might be uh, uh, uncomfortable with, but uh, someone who's suffering with um, specific phobia has taken it to another level. Like none of us, um, nobody likes roaches or or spiders or snakes. Well, some people like them, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but the average person does not like them. Um, somebody with the with the phobia though is definitely afraid of them and um, takes steps to avoid any potential contact with them. So they'll refuse to go to different places that they think that whatever they're fearful of might actually um, be present. Uh, and they, um, it, the specific phobias are, are more common than the OCD. So OCD was about 1%. The specific phobias are about 9% of the population. And women are twice as likely as men to have a specific phobia. And, and they Pretty much the symptoms start in childhood um, at about seven years old. So we're talking early on. You know, we have kids who are afraid of monsters under the bed or mm. about fear of the dark. And what happens when you have a child who's afraid of the dark? If you turn that light switch off, an immediate blood-curdling scream occurs. Mm. And so that's a, cl close, I mean, a clear signal that somebody has that specific phobia. Mm -hmm. But for adults, you know, you're not going to we, – we have more – personal control than that. We're not going to let out a blood curdling scream, although uh, on inside our bodies, we're going to feel that. Like, well, I have, oh, a, I have a confession. Oh. I, I, don't, I don't think I avoid situations or places where there might be mice and rats, but uh -huh. I definitely, uh -huh. I have a, I would have thought a phobia, but based on your definition, it's probably just an extreme fear and discomfort, mm. but I have mm -hmm. let out the blood curdling scream. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I've had little <laughs> tiny, like two inch field mice squeeze it under the door in my office uh, where I used to work and, yeah. um, you know, discover them when I walk in in the morning. And uh, I have been known to be found on my desk <laughs> screaming, mm -hmm. but I still went to work and I didn't okay. avoid certain scenarios. Okay. So would that be the dividing yeah. line between just kind of I really don't like mice and um, having a phobia? Yes, you have to. There's there's a level of. Inter, to make it an actual disorder, it has to interfere mm -hmm. with your life functioning, either your academic, if you're a student or in school, your job performance, or your relationship performance. 
So um, because you were able to go ahead and go to work and you didn't call in sick every day because, you know, we're caught playing disability, I mean, um, some people for some people suffer through. So, or they engage in some kind of um, coping mechanism that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. So maybe you went to work, Dr. Pegg, but you drank a bottle of vodka <laughs> before you went so that you could get there. I mean, people do drink, go to mm-hmm. turn to alcohol to help self-medicate, to help cope with situations that are overwhelming. They use um, substances that are unprescribed um, to help them cope. So these are signals that um, it is something that's overwhelming and might be in the uh, in the phobia category. Mm-hmm. And so there we are talking again about avoidance. And um, mm-hmm. so if a again back in the context of um, uh, schools, safe schools, and um, children feeling safe and um, being able to learn because they have a safe and secure mm-hmm. environment, um, avoidance of whatever they're phobic of, um, certainly, you know, would would prevent them from going to school, would contribute to right. um, absenteeism. And right. they may avoid school altogether or just be so anxious when they're at school that they it may interfere with their ability to learn or their ability right. to perform at school. Right, right. So it's, again, knowing your child. Say their grades drop. Mm-hmm. It's like, or, um, you know, what is going on that affected my child's academic functioning. They can't concentrate. You might get some notes sent home from um, from teachers saying, you know, uh, Jimmy isn't concentrating. He used to, you know, pay attention. Now he seems distracted uh, all the time. So you need to try to play detective and understand what's going on with your child, whether whether it's the active shooter situation or something else in their life that's not that that is a potential or perceived threat for your child. Um, when we talked about, um, you know, the specific phobias, the, the anxiety disorders in general have a kind of react, uh, similarity across them. Uh, and uh, for specific phobias, when you saw the, when you see the mice or when the kids uh, feel like there's an impending danger, which might be the shooter situation or the practice drill, um, it's, we physiologically, we have these um, automatic um, physiological reactions to to as an anxiety response it's the flight flight uh, fight flight or freeze kind of response and so you get this huge surge of adrenaline that you know from which helped you jump on the table um, on your desk at the office when you saw the mouse mm-hmm. um, and I it jumped pretty high body. pretty fast yeah, <laughs> That's see, not adrenaline. That, yes it is it is it is it's um, your body's on red alert mm-hmm. and back in if you believe that we started with the caveman um, you know, that was really protective because you had to, you had these dangerous situations that triggered this um, alert signal um, to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but today it's not as, you know, we don't run into um, hungry saber tooth <laughs> tigers too often, but our bodies can still have these reactions, whether they make sense or don't make sense. What we have to key into is how are we reacting so that we can. Um, take steps to help us get back to normal. Mm-hmm. So important. And so, so let's shift gears and talk about treatment options um, mm-hmm. and uh, what we can do for adults and children uh, if they do suffer from anxiety. Uh, we've talked about kind of a whole range of si- scenarios, situational mm-hmm. kind of in- anxiety and certainly mm-hmm. um, disorders related to phobias and OCD and 
Um, and we didn't talk about panic attacks, but talk about treatments uh, for anxiety disorders and if there's any difference um, in treating children versus adults. Sure. Um, as I mentioned, uh, that there's, uh, anxiety disorders are very treatable. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have, you have different approaches. You have the medical approach, which is through a psychiatrist. Well, first it starts with a good assessment. Regardless, you have to find out specifically what is the issue because there's a lot of overlap between the different types of disorders in terms of symptoms. Um, and let me just go through, you know, it's, uh, you have the physiological symptoms of trouble swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, having fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches. Um, in terms of your, physio your body responses, and you're not able to concentrate, you're irritable, you have muscle aches and tension. Um, nausea, this nervous energy, um, and you might, if there's a specific threat, you might start sweating, trembling, twitching. Mm. Um, we talked about sleep and eating problems, the shortness of breath, rapid breathing. Those kinds of, those are signals that you need to see someone. Okay. Physical, those physiological signals. Because yes. that yes. actually could be something else. That's why you're saying the assessment's so important. You yes. could have some other kind of medical condition, or it could be anxiety, and, and you really need mm -hmm. a qualified uh, medical professional to help you determine that. Correct, mm -hmm. correct. So um, that's, that's the cue that you need to go see a professional. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what professional would you want to go see? Well, it depends on the issue. A good assessment is typically from a uh, clinical psychologist who is trained in doing assessments and diagnosing. So they can also um, treat by doing um, behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Those are two very effective forms of treatment. Um, and a cognitive behavioral therapist is going to work with your thoughts, how your thinking affects your feeling, which affects your behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's a big feedback loop. And so you, you work through how you're talking to yourself which affects how you behave, which affects how you feel. So it's this big loop. Um, the behavioral therapist, the behavioral component is addressing the fear head on. So you ask what the difference is between children and adult treatment. Um, with kids, uh, and for very severe disorders depends, we build like a fear hierarchy. Okay, what's the lowest level that makes you worried? Um, um, so with mice, um, it's just seeing a picture of a mouse. Does that make you anxious? Yes. Yes, it between does. See <laughs> between zero to ten. Just thinking about the mouse. Does it make it? Okay, so just thinking about it. You don't even have to see a picture. What about the movement of an active movement of a, of a video of a mouse? Mm -hmm. How does that affect you? So you would go through, okay, up to the different types of exposure contact with the mouse um, so that it works up to probably a live mouse <laughs> Not necessarily holding one, maybe holding one depends on, you know, what your job is. So say, Peg, your job, instead of being a fabulous uh, radio show host and psychologist, your job was to um, feed the snakes in the snake, in the snake zoo. Right, right. And you, you had to as part of your job. You're going to lose your job. If you weren't able to pick up um, yeah. mice, I'd need to. I'd so. need some actual intervention where that would be the goal. Uh, we're going to run out yeah. of time here in oh, just a sorry, moment. Sorry. So, okay. so we can do these kind of exposure techniques. We can do yeah. medications. We can do yeah. cognitive therapies. Behave mm -hmm. that look at our thoughts. 
Um, and how, yes. and you're saying these treatments are so effective uh, that there's they no are. reason for people to suffer in silence no. or suffer in shame um, that they no. can reach out and get some professional mental health or psychiatric um, help uh, and, and be free from these um, anxiety disorders, from phobias, OCD, panic attacks. The key is prevention, though, mm -hmm. because good exercise to help keep your heart and, and being able to control when you feel these elevations in your blood pressure mm. and the stress. Exercise for kids, exercise for adults, um, of course, the spiritual health um, and uh, behavioral health, all of those are best preventive, um, are, are best steps in prevention. Mm -hmm. Outstanding. Well, Dr. Michelle Cooley Strickland, we just appreciate you sharing your expertise today. Mm -hmm. We've talked about a wide range of topics and um, just being able to take a holistic approach, a wellness approach to anxiety as you're, as you're sharing, just to be healthy in general, exercising, mm -hmm. Uh, being mindful of um, the things that, that we're thinking about, how our thoughts impact our emotions, which affects our behavior. It's all connected. We so appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thank you so much. Always my pleasure, Dr. Ted, anytime. All right. Well, my guest has been Dr. Michelle Cooley Strickland, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.